This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That I want to talk to you, John, about your playing career now. We've talked about your managerial career, all the things you've been up yeah. to in the game, how much you miss it. I want to talk to you about, as I say, John sitting the player. You dispelled when you were younger at Arsenal before then going to Chelsea. Were you always a centre-back? Uh, well, I was always a defender, put it that way. My best position was centre-back, I would think, because of my, my attributes. But, um, you know, I've got... I happen to believe that because I was so well taught at Arsenal, what happened was I went to Arsenal, um, I was training with 14-year-olds and I was 12. Um, and then what happens in adolescence, so in women, women reach their full adult height by the time they're 18 and men by the time they're 21. Well, any time between 13 and 18 for women and 13 and 21 for men, um, you get, or you can have massive growth spurts and it results in a condition called Osgood Slatter, which uh, is a debilitating growth spurt injury. So I was um, in and out of football for about eight months. Arsenal released me after after being there for a year, and then by the time I was 13, um, they were one of nine clubs that I had the choice of uh, to basically go to what we called uh, evening coaching sessions and sign schoolboy. And I, I, I went to Chelsea. I went to quite a few clubs, QPR, uh, I had a look at Fulham, Crystal Palace, Colchester, Man United wanted me, Aston Villa wanted me, um, and Arsenal and Spurs. Spurs was a little bit later on because Keith Bergenshaw saw me in, a, in a, a youth team game and he said, come straight up to me, Dad, and said, um, there's a place for him here. He said if, if he wants to leave Chelsea, he fancy, if he wants to change the scenery, he said there's a place for him here. But I'll... I experienced uh, Chelsea and, uh, you know, the atmosphere, the vibe, the coaching more than anything. Um, that was the place to be because they gave young players a chance. And we had Dave, the first manager was Dave Sexton. And he was very much a fan of the Dutch football of the 70s. Rhinus Michaels, Michaels, Rhinus Michaels, I don't know how you pronounce it. M-I-C-H-E-L-S, his surname. Anyway, him and Dario Grady, um, they set down the blueprint throughout the club on how we were to be coached, and it was absolutely nothing short of magnificent. I enjoyed the atmosphere, and I stayed there. What was it like when you broke into the first team at Chelsea? Because you got in quite young. Benefit of hindsight and experience. You don't think it at the time, but then the penny drops. I was basically... Um, thrown under the bus. You had the great side of the late 60s, early 70s that had been broken up. And then uh, one of the best coaches, one of the most innovative coaches, one of the best charismatic personalities, one of the best man managers I've ever seen in football in my life, Eddie, the great Eddie McCready, he took over after Dave Sexton uh, there was uh, Ron Stewart was caretaker for a while, then Eddie McCready was made manager, and he was nothing short of 
magnificent. And I mean, you know, just unbelievable. You know, the way he talked to people, the way he made you feel, um, uh, your appetite for training and games, the, the sessions he'd put on, the organisation. I mean, before anyone was playing tinkering with formations, I'm going back to the mid-70s, and he played um, 4-4-1-1, and he had Ray Wilkins just behind Steve Finiston, um, Scottish, magnificent goal scorer. And... Um, got us promoted and then he fell out over a club car but everyone in the club none more so than me would have absolutely you know tackled a dumper truck or headed the back of a bus for the man um, and then he left and then Ron Suit was caretaker for a little while again then Ken Shaletto took over by this time I was captain of the reserves and I was outstanding at South East Counties we had a division one and division two side I more or less leapfrogged Division 2 and went straight into Division 1 side, which was second-year apprentices. Like, this was when I was a schoolboy. And then when I was an apprentice, I was already knocking on the door of the reserves. Then by the time I was offered a four-year pro deal at 17 and a half, um, I was already quite well established in the Southeast County Division 1 and having quite a few reserve games. By the time I was 18, I was captain of the reserves. And then at 19, they're looking around and you've got like fraudsters, you've got cheats, you've got people hiding, you've got people not training, you've got people who didn't care about the club, you've got people who cared about the club but then left. Um, for another fellow countryman of yours, uh, on top of Eddie McCready, one of the finest footballers, one of the finest gentlemen I've ever met in the game, David Hay. We got him from Celtic. He was our record signing in 1974. Um, tried to help me and guide me, uh, along with Ronnie Harris and Ray Wilkins. Well, Ray, Wilkins Ray Wilkins ended up going to Man United for 850 grand. Ronnie Harris just like basically cocooned himself and looked after himself in the end, uh, rightly or wrongly. And David A was uh, forced to retire with a detached retina. The rest of the club was basically um, more, more or less like the Titanic. You know, we've been it, we've been broadsided and basically it was every man for himself. And I got thrown under the bus at 19. And at first, I, I acquitted myself really, really well. Came on at half-time under Coventry. was already 3-0 down or 3-1 down. They took Ron Harris off and put me on. Um, then away to Bolton, acquitted myself magnificently again. Uh, marking Frank Worthington. Then um, away to Norwich. Uh, no, sorry, followed by under Liverpool. Acquitted myself magnificently again. Uh Marking Kenny Dalgleish, then away to uh, Norwich, Reeves and Fashionu up front. Totally dominated Fashionu in the air. Um, and, and basically, neither of them had any joy against me. Uh, then we got the wheels come off. I hit a brick wall. We got beat out on by Wolves. I had a nightmare against John Richards and Billy Rafferty. And we got beat out on to QPR. And I had another nightmare. And uh, that was the beginning of the end for me. What they do now is, back then they would say, in you go, son, sink or swim, right? And then when we played, we played Arsenal twice. And again, I was I was outstanding in the home game. And I equipped myself really well in the away game, which led to a row between Ray Wilkins on my behalf and Mickey Droy, um, because Mickey cheated. And he's the biggest underachiever I've ever seen in English football. Uh, looked like desperate Dan. <laughs> uh, big beard, you know, big jutting jaw, six foot four, built like a brick shit house, natural left foot up, good athlete. Um, 
think of a monkey it's never happier than when he had a mug of tea and a Rothmans in his hand. You know what I mean? And um, he'd have eaten every other England centre back for for eleven days. And why he never played at that level, I will never know. Other than the fact that I don't think he wanted it enough. Um, but the original point I was going to make, they said years ago, in you go, son, sink or swim. What they do now, you know, if you hit a brick wall, they bring you out. They get you on a on a bit of a diet, special diet, fitness coach, plyometrics coach, body conditioning and core strengthening coach. Maybe have a game in the reserves. Gonna have a week in Dubai. Come back, week in the reserves again. Then we'll make you sub for the first team, and we'll ease you in gently, gently, softly, softly. Unless it's a, you know, someone like outlandishly outstanding like Rooney as a kid or Cesc Fabregas, someone like that. Do you know what I mean? That's how they tend to do it now. And um, very much player welfare in mind. Years ago, it was like, well, you know. He's been outstanding in the in the youth section. He's been outstanding in the reserves. He's acquitted himself. Listen, let me sum. You know when you're in trouble. You know when you're in trouble. Oh, I can't hear you, John. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm, yeah, I was just going to say. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say was, let me sum it up. Right. You know when you're in trouble. When I look back with the benefit of hindsight, when you're playing a practice match and I'm the reserve, I'm in the reserves and we're playing the first team, right? And you're beating the first team two 0 You understand? There was no goals. There was no goals when they sold Jock Finiston to Sheffield United for hundred grand. There was no goals whatsoever inside that football club. Right? Tommy Langley, bless him, could run all day. His thing was about, I think, it was like one in six. This is a centre forward. He could run all day and all night, but the man could not score on a stag night in Bangkok or Amsterdam. <laughs> Brilliant. In terms, I'm desperate to ask you what was what was Ray Wilkins like as a man? Because from what you've said so far, he just sounds like a true gentleman. Who was that? Ray Wilkins. Ray Wilkins, yeah, yeah. He went. Uh, I woke up to the news that he passed away. Uh, and I think it's tragic Harry Harry went because he was like he went from being Mr Chelsea and uh, if there was a social at the Blackpool where we used to go every Friday for lunch after training um, you know he would have like an orange juice or an orange juice and lemonade or a lemonade and lime uh, two halves of lager he was all over the gaff um, staggering all over the gaff you know so I was told by a third party um that he, he latter day he started to uh, have a bit of a problem with a drink, and he'd had two or three two uh, things where he'd been nicked for drink driving, which is a shame because he went from being a model professional and Mr Chelsea to you know struggling to cope with middle age. Uh, maybe it was a midlife crisis, I don't know, but it was absolutely tragic that he passed away. I, I said when I got the news, I'll put it on Twitter. And I didn't know when I put it on Twitter that uh, Adrian Durham, who works for TalkSport, was basically trawling um, the internet and Twitter, Facebook, whatever, for comments about Ray Wilkins. And he quoted mine on the radio. Uh, you know, and I said that if I could have been anyone else in this life, I would have chosen Ray Wilkins. Because he was an absolute gentleman and he, he was just impeccable manners oozed class you know what I mean everything about him and no 
one had a bad word to say about him. You know, and I, and I think it's a testament to you know how he conducted himself. What about Chopper Harris? He was the same, Ron. You know, he's uh, he's funny, he's witty, he's sharp, um, and he would he would always try and help people. And try, he, 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 me in particular, he tried to help me as a youngster. Um, Ray Wilkins tried to help me, and David O tried to help me. But do you think I'd listen? <laughs> what tickled me about Ron is. Um, you know, what, what he does he, with Ron, it, it, it's like uh, when he talks, when he's been interviewed, it's like an act, you know? It's like the, um, uh, you know, sort of backward working class boy out of Acme, which is where I'm from. And he, he, he very much plays to the stereotype, but he is as sharp as a carpet tack. And what, what interested me uh, when they were doing a thing about the FA Cup last year, they were showing the... Uh, uh, Cup finals through the ages, and one of them was the Chelsea Leeds, which we had to watch as schoolboys. The, the, the Chelsea Leeds 69 70 final, and um, he was swapped over. He started at Wembley at centre back, and David Webb was right back. And then what they'd done, Dave Sexton swapped him over for the replay. And the first tackle up is absolutely crippled Eddie Gray, and then they highlighted it on this program. So he said, Yeah, he probably wouldn't get away with it today. And they said, oh, about your reputation, this and that. And he said, let me ask you this question, or let me put this to you. He said, you can't play over 800 games in the top flight just by kicking people. Absolutely. I think that sums it up, because he's one of those players who's known as being very fierce, but as you've said, you, you don't play that many games if you don't have quality. No, very highly intelligent Somebody, obviously, I want to ask you about who basically caused the end of your Chelsea career, as you've mentioned, is Jeff Hurst, a man who won the World Cup. Does, is, in your opinion, is he proof that just because you were a good player doesn't mean you're going to be a good coach? No, oh, Carl Stein. Carl Stein. I remember I was, uh, at the time, I was actually in the first team. I played alongside Mickey Troy, and um, I was predominantly right-footed, so I was on the right. Mickey was predominantly left-footed, so he was on the left. So it was a good uh, complement, good balance. Um, you know, although although I could chop it back on my left foot and clip the ball in, uh, so I was two-footed really uh, over any distance. And what happened was we were playing. A, I remember distinctly playing a reserve game, and we were by now we were based at the Metropolitan Police Sports Ground in Invercourt in Surrey the club couldn't afford its own training ground. Anyway, we were playing against the reserves and someone had broke through, made a third man run um, and had a near miss or scored. I think we ended up, we got beat. And my mate, Jimmy Clare, um, who's very, very similar to the boy now, Billy, uh, oh, who's the kid? Billy Gilmore. Um, Billy Gilmore, he'll, he'll end up captain of Scotland, he will. Um, he, 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 he was like Billy Gilmore. He would run games single-handedly. He ran like him. And he passed like him. Um, but there I say it, he had more tricks than Billy Gilmore. Um, but he was let go for being too small and too light. <laughs> well, he was running the game. And we, I think we was losing 1-0. And Mickey Joy was like, oh, this is a fucking joke. Uh, we need to do this, do this. I said, yeah, what we need to do is when, when we get the ball forward or when we clear it, we need to think about condensing the play. So I looked over at Jeff first. He's chewing a blade of grass, um, laying on the grass, getting a suntan. He says, get Brian Eastick over. He can put the session 
And then what happens is you start to, you know, it's like a like a like a, a video or a DVD. Boom, 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 boom. You start like a, a different frames going through your mind. In my mind's eye, I'm going through all these different frames. Hold on, when when did he ever put a session on? Hold on, when did he ever coach us? When did he ever drill the back four? When did he ever do patterns of play? When did he ever do set pieces or restarts? When did he ever do throw-ins? When did he ever do crossing and... Hold up. He never ever did it. The only freeze frames I've got in my mind are runs around the perimeter wall of Richmond Park, which came to 7.2 miles or something like that. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you've hit the nail on the head. Absolute living testimony that uh, someone who... I mean, I don't think he was a particularly good player. I mean, he got hat-trick in the World Cup final, but he played football when it was like one up from park football. He wouldn't have got hat-trick against me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you think, this man, you're, you're gonna, you and your listeners now, listen, I don't care what you think. You, you and your listeners now, you're going to think, this this geezer's off his fucking nut. He's, he's talking about delusions earlier on. This man's deluded. Well, I'm not. I'm telling you now, I am telling you now, right, I'm telling you as true as I'm sitting here talking to you, right, that he would not have scored that trick against me. He would not have got a kick against me. He was the most immobile, predictable centre forward um, probably uh, in the country, right? And yet, you know, his face fits. He's in the right place at the right time. Um, our record, really, when you look at it, record goals, goals to games ratio, our true record goal is Jimmy Greaves who was by far a better player, by far uh, in every way, shape or form. He was a better athlete, he was two-footed, he was he had more tricks and he was a better finisher, right? Well, he, he wasn't available for injury. And, and this is where I talk in my book about luck and fate and someone's perception, someone's opinion, someone who may or may not like the cut of your jib or the way you talk or the way you conduct yourself. And the man was, was in the right place at the right time. But it's like the rest of them. You know, they play football when it was one up from park football. From working with him, you moved to Millwall, who are in the fourth division at the time. What was it like playing for Millwall? Because their fans have got a reputation as being a bit mental. Uh, yeah, probably shooting me down to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I said in my book, I said in my book, if you can't play for Millwall supporters, you should not be playing professional football. That 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 sums up my feelings about that club and about the supporters and about my time there. And I can honestly go on record and say I had 18 of the happiest months of my life. Um, and then another mug turned up. Um, people were going to look at it and say, well, the common denominator is you. Right? Well, no, it's not. I just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time because uh, the manager that signed me had uh, health issues. In the end, he, he, he left. He was 25 years ahead of his time in terms of coaching, in terms of preparation, in terms of player psychology in terms of player welfare. That was George Petchy. And then the geezer turned up who'd been playing in America for Tampa Bay Rowdies. And his previous clubs were some Mickey Mouse club in Belgium, who at the time were more famous for cherry beer and chocolate. And before that, Luton Town. His name was Peter Anderson. And he, he was another Muppet. All it was was a nine-a-side over um, uh, Southwark Park on the AstroTurf, or it was a, a weight and, weights and track session. That's all he could think of. And he was clueless. And what he knew about the English first division at the time, you could write on the back of a, of a fag packet. 
Um, you know, and he said, I want to change things. And the, um, a new chairman came in called Alan Thorne. Um, the, he started to pay off the club's debts. We were 500 grand in debt. He started to pay off the debts. And uh, he said, you know, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, I want to change things around and sign players. And he, he said, um, I want you to go and talk to Keith Peacock at Gillingham. He fancies you. He said, I'm, I'm bringing in a, another centre-back. I said, oh, yeah, who are you bringing? He said, I'm bringing in Sam Allardyce. Sam says in his book, he actually chose Millwall right above uh, a higher division club, one in the second division, one in the first division, because Millwall were paying him more money. And I had a couple of socials with Sam, and he openly uh, spoke forward slash bragged about what he got. He got a house in Alpington, uh, might be the Seven Oaks, I think it was Alpington. Anyway, that was rent-free, a big mansion. Um, he basically... He got a ba- he got a, a basic wage offered to him that blew other clubs out of the water who were after his signature, and um, he got other perks, and he got a massive uh, signing on fee, um, which he said to me at a club that we went to in Deptford, a nightclub, um, was given to him in uh, in Redis, and it, you know he, he invested it in. Uh, I think he opened. He said that he, whether it's true or not, I don't know. He was uh, taking over the only burger joint at the time in Bolton, where he where he'd been uh, before, and he um, he said he's, he's going to invest it in that. So how true that is, I don't know, but that's what he told me when we was having a night out. From Millwall to Gillingham, did you you mentioned the fact that you didn't really want to leave Millwall, but you were kind of forced out? How did Gillingham compare as a club? And sum up your time there. like the difference between um, uh, I don't know walking through the most crime ridden part of London um, and then all of a sudden going for a drive in the country (laughs) you know it was like you know Millwall was much more urban and edgy Um, I mean I had a great reputation at Millwall I scored on my own debut and then I went through three 50-50s in quick succession and ironed out three, three of the opposition, and the gaff erupted like we won the European Cup. Um, what happened was Gillian and Keith Peacock had been, I was recommended to him by a guy who was flitting between the two clubs that had worked with Peacock in um, in America by the name of Ted Buxton, who went on as number, uh, worked as number three to Terry Venables at England and at Spurs. Um, and uh, he came and watched me, Peacock, and I've done a deal and uh, this was after a reserve game in the afternoon. The first team were playing in the evening, and I come out and said to me, Mrs. and me dad, like that's it, I've done the deal. I'm going to Gillingham. Uh, I can't stay here any longer under Anderson. And uh, my missus burst into tears, which obviously started me off because we'd made so many good friends. Um, we felt so at home now, and we were made to feel so welcome, and I was made to feel so appreciated. I just wanted to go back and give them more. I just wanted to do it. You know, when when I was, you was playing well, when I was playing well, um, you know, Mill supporters uh, would get onto you and you'd want to keep doing it for them and keep doing it again and again and again. And if they give me a bollock, you know, I'd go, right, well, fucking, I'll show you. And then I'd, I'd start ironing a few people out and they'd get them back on your side. Um, either way, they were going to get a reaction at me and I absolutely loved the place. And uh, my wife started crying, I started filling up. And I went to Gillingham and all that. I was made to feel welcome. In uh, terms of personnel, 
Um, probably the best set of, set of lads that I ever came across in my career, if the truth be told, because there wasn't there wasn't really one scallywag amongst them, and there wasn't really one nasty piece of work amongst them. They were all um, absolute men. What I mean by men. They went about their business, they looked after their families, they trained well, they tried to play well, and uh, they conducted themselves impeccably. And uh, they were absolute gentlemen, every every last one of them. You know, so probably Gillingham was probably, I would have to say, the, the, the closest I came to perfection in terms of getting on with the whole of the playing stuff compared to other clubs. Chelsea, it was like every man for himself backstabbing, people talking behind your back, people having a pop at you, people coming out with little little sides, snipe remarks, um, on one occasion even trying to top you in training. I can remember at least two. Um, Millwall, there was a couple of people who, if the going got tough, they didn't fancy it. So, you know, and, it, and there was like there was something a little bit snidey about them. Um, chilling them, it was more or less perfect. Late night, but again, it was all politics again. And uh, I don't play, I don't play in games. You know, I mean, what you see is what you get. And I'll, I'll treat people and conduct yourselves around people the way they conduct themselves around me. You mentioned the fact that conducting yourself in in the right way is something you've always been passionate about. After your time at Gillingham, you you go to Late Orient. We've talked about your managerial spell there, but. As as the club as as a player for the club, you were the you were the captain. You 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 earned promotion as captain. Do you feel that you were born to be a captain? And do you how do you reflect in your time as a player at Leighton Orient because it was a good time for the club? Yeah, I, I mean, like, again, it's a little bit narcissistic and arrogant. But I thought, apart from Chelsea, uh, I should have captained every every uh, every club I played for, like Millwall. Um, you know, like, fair enough. Like you had. Uh, uh, a couple of people there who would do, do the captaincy duties. Um, one of them was a club legend, Barry Kitchener, so I'm not going to argue with that. Um, Gillian and it was Steve Bruce. Uh, Leighton Orion. What happened was they spent massive amounts of money and Frank Clark got mugged off left, right and centre with some of his buyers, some of his purchases. One of, one of them was Tommy Cunningham from uh, Wimbledon for 40 grand, who was a centre-back. Um, he couldn't hit the ball, he couldn't run, he couldn't tackle, um, wasn't a particularly good passer at a ball. Made the game easy for himself by basically bossing and bullying other people um, and then going on the missing list knowing, knowing how to uh, you know, duck below the parapet. Uh, well, he, he was Clark's captain and what happened was he had a, he took a pub in Bethnal Green uh, that he runs a side business, lived above the pub and he dropped a barrel on his big toe in, uh, during pre-season. Uh, so he was out for the start of the season. I'd had a magnificent pre-season, so I was now going to be in the side anyway, I, I would like to think. And then he said, uh, you know, I'm going to give you the captaincy as you start. It, this was off the back of coming in, and I actually, um, I've named every chapter in my book after um, the title of a, of a song. And uh, the, the late Norian one, I named it after... Um, Frankie goes to Hollywood, they, they had a hit called Pleasure Dome. Because when I turned up there, it was like an holiday camp. Absolute anarchy. 
Um, people not training right, no tempo, no pace. Uh, they just come back off of uh, two lot, two relic, successive relegations. The the walls were closing in on Frank Clark. People were talking behind. I was I did up. Listen, I'll end, I, I'll go on the record, and I, I don't give a fuck what anyone thinks. I'll, I'll, I will go on record with the benefit of hindsight. I was one of the best signings ever of Frank Clark's career because I had his back. I kept control of the dressing room, and I made sure uh, everyone warmed up properly and we trained properly. Um, and I was like almost an expert in non-verbal communication. Um, you know, so like at, at the end of the day, uh, with regards to directors chipping away, most certainly Derek Weinrode, the vice chairman, um, he had it in for Frank big time. You know what I mean? And different people chipping away at him after being left out the side. And I had his back. And and I, I would say I went a long way to towards being one of the people that saved him from getting the sack. And he squandered massive money on on various, let's say at best average players. I would say well below average players like Barry Silkman and Tommy Cunningham, who had to take. They they still ended up on three times more than me, uh, but they this was after taking a massive pay cut because the club was already yet again they didn't towards liquidation. So they they done a. Um, a straw poll of all the players. They they went round to different players, various players who were on big contracts, and asked them if they'd take a, a pay cut. And um, some of them, realising that no other club would take them anyway, they said, "Yeah, sure, we'll take a pay cut." And they took a pay cut. But I've gone in there from day one, and uh, I thought I was a fantastic captain for him. In terms of your time at Leighton Orient, it was a good time for you. You. Retire as a player and coaching something you were, you've talked about your passion for. You coached at Lillishaw alongside Alan Pardew and Kenny Jackett and Don Howe was working there at the time. What were they like as characters? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, when you meet them, you think, but like, but I won't melt in their mouth. But uh, there's quite a few things, that, uh, especially about Pardew, that, that since then have transpired. But it's not for me to comment on. Um, but no, you know, like it's like um, I would say, let's say what maybe seventy percent, seventy to eighty percent of people in football, I call them the smiling assassins. You know, I, you know, like the, when you first meet. The, I'm not saying this about Pardew or particularly about Kenny. Or you know, I think he's a thoroughly decent man. Um, he actually tried to get me the youth team job at Watford. Kenny. Um, we were in the inaugural group that converted to the UEFA in 1997. Um, so in, in no way, shape or form would I say anything uh, detrimental about Kenny Jacket. But, you know, a lot of people you meet in football, I call them the smiling assassins because like while they're shaking your hand and smiling and trying to crack jokes and pleasantries, you know that like, <laughs> you know, if push came to shove, they'll have your eyes out. You know what I mean? Um but no, it was like, who's who? That that first thing up there, it was like, when I went on my full badge in 1990, then converted to the UEFA a few years later, both of them, it was like, who's who? I, I actually remember the 1991 better because there was people on the course like um, famous centre forward for Leeds, Ray Hankin, uh, Tony Curry, Clive Walker, Paul Goddard, uh, people like these, you know, there, there was, there was uh, Peter Reid was in my group. He'd just come, he'd just come back in... The previous like uh, four years, he he played in the uh, Mexico World Cup and got roasted by Maradona. Um, you know, which I would imagine most people did. But 
um, yeah, it was like a, a fantastic experience. And like you say, that was meant to be the next stage for me. I ended up going back to Leighton Orient as their academy coach um, or coaching in the academy on a Monday evening and a Thursday evening. I was doing two one-hour sessions for a tenner just so that I could get a foothold in the game. Um, but it's something that I would never do again. Um, when people say, oh, why don't you go back to the kids? Why don't you go back to them? They've been saying it for two decades now. And it depends. One In one aspect, if you go abroad, it becomes glorified babysitting and there's no end product, even though some people I know have been very, very lucrative in places like the United States. Over here, um, I wouldn't go back to to uh, schoolboy or youth team football because, you, A, you get paid a pittance, um, and, and B, again, there's no, you don't see any um, any any real end product from it. You know, there's, I, I would want to be somewhere, want have a job, or I would have wanted a job where I'm, I'm getting. There's some, there's a destination. You know, there's a goal. There's something, there's something to go for. Um, it just it wasn't for me. Uh, but initially, I thought, well, you know, it's 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 like um, rungs of a ladder. You know what I mean? And um, I lost my foot in and fell ass over tit, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned uh, Don Howe. What what was he like? Because obviously he's somebody that's that's incredibly well respected within the game and had built so many great teams himself. Yeah, it's funny because when we went to the UEFA uh, UEFA conversion, he came up and he did a. Um, we went to go to le- in the lecture theatres in the evening and he did this thing on theory. And we were playing this um, imaginary game in Europe against, uh, he just plucked a name out there and said to AC Milan, how would you set up? And we were put in different groups. And in my group was the uh, former Watford, now Blackburn, head of youth development. I don't know the geezer's name, uh, dark hair geezer with a moustache, somebody else, somebody else, somebody else, Chris and somebody else, right? All of them uh, supposedly quite high profile and uh, either had good jobs to go to or already in a good job. And um, I was the only one that sorted out the theory. Donnell said, yep, spot on. You've got to do that. He said, if you don't do that, they'll play through you, blah, blah, blah. Gave all the reasons. Um, And he put a couple of sessions on. You'd have paid money to watch them. In terms of the the, the coaching time at Lillishaw, We've talked a lot about your time at Leighton Orient as a manager. We talked about the documentary. We talked about what happened after that in terms of struggling to get back into football. Did you feel, did you fall out of love with football? How tough was it mentally in those years after Leighton Orient when you were desperate to get back in but you just couldn't get that chance? Well, there's a few answers to that question, right? I've never ever fallen out of love with a game. I'm hooked on... Uh, match of the day, match of the day too. I don't subscribe to Sky because of Murdoch. Um, I've got my reasons. But um, I've never fallen out of love with a game. It's just like, you know, I've fallen out of love with some of the people in it. I think my confidence took a big knock. Um, I think that when um, I was ready, willing and able to carry on coaching in non-league, Again, it's about networking and you find that non-league managers go from club to club 
and, and the club that they'll go to will be one with a bigger budget than the club they're at. And they just keep going for all the time, budget, budget, budget. And what they do is they just take the players with them that they're used to working with, right? Well, you know, I would rather try and build something from scratch and I would rather try and add players who wanted to be there rather than who were just there for the pay packet. Um, I think you can maybe meet, meet somewhere in the middle and find some sort of middle ground um, with regards to uh, the reasons for a player being at a football club. Where the FA are concerned, um, I was a coach educator for nine years. Every single course was fully subscribed, 32 candidates. Um, the feedback, they would just have to fill in a questionnaire at the end. The feedback that I got was phenomenal. And I was advised that the FA were now going to start appointing area monitors. So you'd be like an area monitor forward slash um, technical director. And you would go around and police, for want of a better word, you would police, keep an eye on courses that were being run by other coaches. And what you'd be, you'd be a sounding board for those coaches. And you would oversee the, the fact that uh, the courses were being run correctly and uh, the sessions put on were appropriate. Well, well I, I applied for that. I declared an interest in that. And um, this was after generating literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds for the FA. And at the time, it paid fairly decent money for the mid-90s. I think it was high-20s, low-30s. Um, if you had a car which obviously you would need, they would give you a, 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 a mileage allowance. Um, I've never even got an interview again. And then when I look around, people who, who I'd put sessions on and they've gone like fucking at the time, wow, you know, you've, you've taught me something today or you've opened my eyes, you've made me aware of something I wasn't aware of before, which I think is your, is your duty as a coach. Um, they were given the jobs, right? Well, here's the... Um, is basically the, the, the punchline. All these people were school teachers. All these people, they'd never laced a pair of boots on in anger. None of these people were radical or innovative or inventive. Um, they were just like what I call company men. So I said to the, 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 the FA via the LFA who I work for, that's me done. I won't be staffing any more courses. The thing is with football, is you've always got someone ready, willing, and able to walk in a dead man's shoes, you know? So what I will say is I've been... You said earlier on about me being a bit angry. Yeah, yeah, I've been... You know what? Yeah, you're right. And the most angry I've been is, is at myself right throughout my career. My whole career has been bittersweet at every single club and the coaching and management side. It's been um, a very bittersweet experience. Any anger, most of it um, is aimed at myself because I'm angry with myself. With regards to being bitter, I say, yeah, I'm bitter. So what? Now what? Because of the way I was treated by Keith Peacock, because of the way I was treated by Frank Clark, who between them kept me on the same money for eight years, because of the way I was betrayed by Frank Clark towards the end of my career at Leighton Orient when I had a row with Peter Eustace, who stabbed me in the back after calling me his Mike Lyons. What's that mean, Peter? Well, when I was number two to Howard at Sheffield Wednesday, we bought Mike Lyons from Everton. He said, you're exactly like him. You're a boss. You're a leader. 
you're a great contributor in team meetings. He said, you're, you're a fantastic defender. He said, you've got this, quote, manliness about you. He said, and you know, that I know that when you're going for the ball, just like Mike Lyon, nothing's going to get in your way. All you see is the ball. He said, and I like that. So I thought I was going to be around for a few years to come. And I fell out. I fell out with Peter Eustace because he stripped me of the captaincy because um, he wanted to give it to the person who won all the cross-country runs. <laughs> so I am, I am a little bit bitter about things. But uh, I'll say, yeah, so what? Now what? <laughs> I'm living with it. I'm getting on with it. Um, I'm, I'm surviving with it. And... Um, it's just like uh, when I look back at what's gone on at Lake Norrin over the last 25 years, I, the, 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 the only analogy that I can draw is when I watch the Football League show on Quest, on the TV on Quest, when they do the English Football yep. League. Right? The more defending I see on the TV, the better the defender I was. Right? The more, so the more, uh, the more I see going on at Lake Norrin, uh, the better the manager I know I was, and the better the better the coach I know I was, because I know that I was working along the right lines, and I was trying to build the, the, the something from the ground up, and give the uh, the supporters who I think we could have added to, um, you know, a club to be proud of. Instead of which, I've already said it, they were sold a dream and they're living a nightmare. I want to talk to you about your book. Knowledge is a dangerous thing. You mentioned the fact that that you wrote the book yourself, which is which is admirable. And I just want to ask you, where can people buy the book? Where can people access the book? And in terms of the book itself, how proud are you that it's done so well? Uh, very proud indeed. Um, I wrote it longhand. I think I've done something like four hundred and seventy-five pages, and it was edited down to something like four hundred and fifty-three pages. It's called uh, A Little Knowledge is a Dangerous Thing, which obviously I was the victim of. And it's also a little nod in homage to my uh, uh, what's been my profession for the last 17 years, uh, as in, you know, the topographical knowledge of London. Um, I'm on Twitter, at The Real Sips, right? And I'm going to quickly explain to you, the reason I called it or we called it At The Real Sips is because when I was first sacked and Twitter came... Uh, to the four, there was about three or four people who were imposters and make, they were making out they were me and uh, they were targeting celebrities and they were trolling other people uh, using my name and getting away with using quite serious profanity. One of the victims or one of the people who's, who got quite a lot of stick was Stan Collymore. So he thought that he might have been getting stick from me, but it wasn't me. It was someone who was uh, tr they were making out they were me. So I actually, when I went on there and opened the account, it's at the real sit. And um, my email address is in my wife's name, which is Louisa Sitton at tiscally.co.uk. Uh, but it's spelled um, because she's uh, Eastern Mediterranean Greek Cypriot. Her name is spelled L-O-I-Z-A. Right, so L-O-I-Z-A, Sitton, S-I-T-T-O-N, at tiscally. .co.uk, and uh, you can order the book there. Um, the, the, the other one is probably where you can order it more more quickly and, and appropriately would be www.therealsits.co.uk, which is my website. Um, what I will say, 
is um, it's been an ongoing concern for the last two or three years, and we've had four re- what they call reruns or reprints, and we've sold out four times. Um, I've literally uh, got less less than one box left um, after the recent thing on Talksport where I was actually demoted. I was his all-time favourite autobiography, Adrian Durham. Um, his, his all-time favourite sports autobiography, and I, I recently got relegated to second um, behind Bobby Moore, which is not bad company to be in, my man. Absolutely. <laughs> so, in terms of the book, as I say, it's something that I would recommend that people that people read, and I hope I hope people who are listening to this order it because honestly they won't regret it. And I just want to finish with a, a round of quick fire questions, John. You've been great so far. Who are the best players you played with? Who are the best players you played with? Um, right up there, there's got to be. I don't think you could put a price on him if he were around today. He came back to Chelsea Football Club for the second time as I was coming through the ranks. Um, would be Peter Osgood. Uh, closely followed by David Hay, uh, famous Celtic player, played for Scotland in the 74 World Cup. We'll never forget seeing him. And I, I actually think he out-Brazil the Brazilians uh, when they played against Brazil in the 74 World Cup. Um, he could literally, I think, he, if you asked him, he probably could have played in goal. He was a fantastic athlete, a fantastic ability, um, hard as nails, good athlete, um, and very, very technically competent. And Ray Wilkins, they would be the ones I played with in my career. What about the best opponents? Um, well, for different reasons. Um, I would say Kenny Dalglish, you couldn't go to sleep for, you could switch off for a second. Uh, Kenny Dalglish, um, Frank Worthington, he, he was. I thought he was um, a little bit more physical than people actually saw. He played in an era where, uh, you know, you had to be able to look after yourself. Um, but, yeah, very, very good technician. Then did like team, teams like I'll come up against like the Arsenal, uh, Frank Stapleton. Um, he was very, very technical. Uh, uh, Malcolm McDonald, another one. He played up front from when I played against him. So, you know, you're talking at like you're talking international superstars of their day, really. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, all pretty tough opponents in their own way. Who would you say is the most underrated player you played with? The most underrated player I played with? Um, I think... I'm going to name two. One was Keith Day, who was my, my brother in arms, my partner um, in the late Orient promotion side, 88, 89. He had absolutely everything. You know, he, he was he was a good athlete. He was quick. He could read the game. He could pass the ball, control the ball really well. He could run the ball in, which latter day they wanted centre-halves to start to do. Um, very, very competent defender. Um, Ronnie Harris, I would name um, you know, never judge a book by its cover. He, they, they, you know, they just he got this reputation for being which he was hard as nails, and he wouldn't suffer idiots. And if someone needs, let me tell you this story. Right, we was going up the tunnel, 
we was just about to go on to the pitch and we were playing Liverpool at Stamford Bridge, right? Now, Liverpool at the time, they were European champions and they were league champions and they just won everything left, right and centre. I'm talking like 1978, 79, right? They just won everything in sight. I remarked in my book that if they'd have entered the Grand National, the Derby, the British Grand Prix and the British Open, they probably would have won them as well. <laughs> We're going up the tunnel. Ray, Ray Wilkins, he turns around, he says to me and Mickey Nutton and Eamon Bannon, who we just bought from Scotland, right? Watch yourself. He said, if you get a 50-50, he said, be careful. If you get a 50-50 with Graham Soonis, he said, he's a dirty bastard. He said, he'll go over the top on you, right? I'm telling you now, Graham Soonis, right, was a coward and a bully, and he never went within 10 metres of Ronnie Harris, right? The easiest thing in the world, the easiest thing in the world when someone is going in fair to win the ball, the easiest thing in the world is to wait for him and go over the top and, and, and take a chance on seriously injuring them and breaking their leg. Right? There's a massive difference. Let me tell you, there's a massive, massive difference to people who don't know, who don't know what they're looking at, haven't experienced it and never played in it. There's a massive experience between a genuine hard man and a dirty player. Right? Yep. There's a massive difference. Ronnie Harris could be both. Graham Soonis was one, but not the other. Right? And I'm telling you now, Ronnie Harris never went, the uh, uh, grandson has never went within 10 metres of Ronnie Harris uh, during that game at Stamford Bridge, which we drew 0 nil. Right? And um, the other underrated player that I played with was Jimmy Clare. He was just like a uh, carbon copy. Billy Gilmore is a carbon copy of the guy that I played with called Jimmy Clare. He got a one-year pro contract in the end. We came through the ranks together, schoolboy, apprentice, young professional. Um, back in those days, all of a sudden, everybody started signing honey monsters. You had to be, whether it's centre-half, centre-midfield or centre-forward, you had to be six foot two or above. Built like a brick shit house, run all day like Vinnie Jones. Right, <laughs> right. But I'm telling you now, Jimmy Clare, he could run games single-handedly, just like Billy Gilmore. But I happen to think is an unbelievable prospect and a future. As soon as I saw him play, the first game I saw him play, I said, this kid here won't be long before he's a full international and it won't be long after that before he's, he's captain, uh, captain in his country. That's my opinion. I agree. I think, I think you're spot on there. What was your favourite ground to play at and why? Favourite ground? Yep. I think... Um, Favourite ground of all time to play on. I've played at every single ground bar, I think, two, which is Liverpool and Leeds. Old Trafford was good. But I have to say, in terms of surroundings, in terms of the building, in terms of the content, in terms of uh, just like the dressing room was like mahogany and marble and underground eating and granite, it's got to be the old hybrid. Great shout, great shout. Um, interested to know, John, what are your opinions on the modern game now and the money that's in the game now? Obscene. Obscene. What, what, I look at people ask me, someone asked me, I've done a podcast last night, someone asked me a question, never asked me a question, made a statement about uh, Gareth Southgate in England and I said, oh, sorry, but we'll have to agree to disagree. So I, I said I couldn't disagree more. 
Um, I said I thought it, that, that you know, despite all the potential and all the uh, getting back in touch with the supporters and getting that connection again with the public and the supporters, I thought uh, England were a massive letdown in the last championship. I said, and they were, I think the people he surrounded himself with, I said, see what it is, like I've got the memory, my memory, um, even though I'm getting older and, and, you know, I forget things and I get a little bit sketchy on something. My memory with regards to football, with regards to coaching, with regards to the game is absolutely mustard. Uh, and was, it was a very intricate uh, free kick where you've got two on the ball, one rolls it short, it gets dinked to the far post. Uh, the guy at the far post has already bent his run to go beyond the far post. He heads it back across the goal for a third man run to come in and finish, right? That was Dario Grady, circa 1980s crew Alexandra, who the England number two worked under and uh, made his bones with, right? So like I remarked to the people around me when I was watching the game, um, you know, everyone's uh, suffering premature ejaculation over this new uh, concoction. I said, this is like 30 years old. Right, and then you've got Southgate and his number two again, Steve something, I forgot his name. When we played Croatia, they were in the land of the bewildered. Uh, we had Harry, uh, Harry Kane up front on his own. They left him 2v, uh, 2v1, Croatia left him 2v1. They drove him deeper and deeper and deeper for the ball. Their two uh, fullbacks pushed in and they ended up having 3v2 overloads on the right side um, on our right side of the pitch against our right wing back and right midfield player and then in the centre of the pitch against our centre midfield player and then on our wide left against our left wing back. Consequently, we ended up with, um, they ended up with an overload, 3v2, 3v2, 3v2 because what I used to do when I coached, I also coached, they, you know when they, they mark the pitch out into three thirds, I also used to mark the pitch out into three thirds depending on the session. Instead of horizontally, I used to do it lengthways, long ways, right? And if you look at it, there's a 20-minute spell where we've got the chasing of our life, and you look up and you'll see five England players marking two or three England players marking one in our defending third, which leads to the overloads in the other areas of the field. And I'm saying to the people around me, does this geezer really know what he's looking at? And if he don't, does his number two? Well, the answer to both was no because we went from 1-0 up to losing the game 2-1 after extra time, right? So, um, going all around the houses, looking at, the way I'm looking at it, you know, things are not in as great, great a shape as uh, people think they are. You understand what I'm trying to say? Yep, absolutely. The last question I've got for you is, considering you were in the documentary in the 90s, lots of clubs are doing the documentaries now, if a manager of a club the size of Leighton Orient's approach to do a documentary, what advice would you give them? Um, what, really? Yeah. the benefit of hindsight? Editorial control. Um, what it was, the person concerned uh, came round and uh, right towards the end of the season said... Uh, I can get this film out, I can get it aired. The production company want to edit it, edit, edit, edit the whole season's film, but I need to get you to sign this disclaimer. And then very naively and very trusting, I signed the disclaimer without any sort of uh, what you might call legal remit um, over the editing. All I wanted, all I asked for was a fair and uh, balanced,
balanced overview of what had gone on behind the scenes, the work I was doing behind the scenes, the six jobs I was doing, and uh, what was really going on at the football club. And then obviously, you know, people, if they've seen it, they'll know that that wasn't the case. So what I'd say in a nutshell, some sort of editorial control. Brilliant, John. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. No worries, mate. You're very welcome. And and may I say, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, I'm sorry if I've uh, went off at a tangent on a few occasions and all that, but, you know, once someone likes to touch paper with me with football, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll go all over the place. I'll get verbal diarrhoea and I can't, I can't stop. So, uh, you know, uh, I appreciate uh, your interest and I appreciate you calling me and contacting me. Um, it still means the world that people can can be bothered to, uh, you know, wonder what it is I'm thinking. But um, like I say, I apologise if some of it was a bit long-winded. No problem. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make her 